0: Good evening. I'm Martin Bang, and here's what's coming up: over 800 loyalists unfriended in revolutionary block party; X-rated publisher's dirty deal for Cops Holiday; and Bayern Munich from kickoff to kings of the pitch. Plus, a shocking development as a time-traveling pigeon is caught cheating in a historical reenactment of the Pigeon Post. That's all coming up tonight. Remember, the news doesn't stop, but my sanity has a curfew.
1: News bang, unravelling the tangled web of deceit one fact at a time, 1776.
2: On this day in 1776 and six, a bunch of disgruntled colonials decided they'd had enough of paying tea taxes and not being able to vote for their own representatives. Thus began the American Revolutionary War, a bloody conflict between those who wanted independence and those who were quite happy as it was. Thank you very much.
0: The Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge was a turning point when the rebels, led by Gimlet Eye Larry Swansong, ambushed some unsuspecting loyalists mid-picnic. The Redcoats never saw it coming, literally, as they were facing the wrong way admiring some docks. 850 of them were taken prisoner or as souvenirs.
2: George Washington famously chopped down a tree here to build a makeshift boat before rowing across the Delaware River with an oar up his trousers. France and Spain joined in on the side of the rebels, attracted by their spirited, entrepreneurial can do attitude. Whatever that means.
0: The war dragged on for another eight years until both sides agreed to call it quits at the Treaty of Paris in 1780 something or other. America got its independence. We kept Canada, which no one wanted anyway, because it was too cold. 1972. In a scandal that rocked the nation to its very foundation garments, it emerged today that notorious pornographer James Humphrey had been bribing a high-ranking London bobby with exotic holidays. The sleazy Soho baron, who had fingers in more pies than the great British bake-off, showered the unnamed officer with illicit getaways in return for turning a blind eye to his seedier establishments.
2: Humphreys' cash-for-ass instance antics came to light when anti-corruption officers discovered his saucy diaries, detailing meetings between him and Inspector Yvonne Squeaky Bottom of Scotland Yard's obscene publication branch, or Dirty MacGuffin Division, as they were known on the beat.
0: The revelations sent shockwaves through Westminster, leaving MPs gasping into their copies of Health and Efficiency. One insider told us, it's like something out of a smutty novel, and well actually it is. This just in, editor of the Sunday People, Hugh Wetzbert says he will bring down more bent coppers if they don't leave his wives alone. Oh, it's in 1900. On this day in 1900, FC Bayern Munich was born, an abominable club, which would go on to terrorize the football world like a leather clad dominatrix with a taste for flat beer and sauerkraut. Founded by a group of enthusiasts bored of tanks and short trousers, their diabolical plan was to rule German football for eternity, or until they got bored. Whichever came first.
2: And boy, did they deliver! Winning 333 national titles and 20 cups, mostly by looking at their opponents sideways or laughing sinisterly from the stands, we caught up with lifelong fan Heimlich Blitzkrieg at their Allianz Arena Fortress. We love our team! he said between mouthfuls of bratwurst. They are as ruthless as an SS Panzer division going through Belgium.
0: So far ahead are these Teutonic titans that even Hindenburg's Zeppelin must look on enviously if it hadn't been tragically consumed by flames. And with no sign of them slowing down any time soon, it seems only a matter of time before Europe falls under their firm grasp.
1: News bang. Unleashing the Hounds of Truth on the Bullshit Brigade.
0: Here's Shakanaka Giles with the forecast for tomorrow's weather.
3: Tomorrow in the southeast, expect a damp and dreary day, like a soggy biscuit that's lost its crunch. A bit of drizzle here and there, just enough to make you wish you'd brought your umbrella. Moving on to the Midlands, where it'll be a bit like a wet dog shaking itself dry, a few showers, but nothing that'll dampen your spirits. Up north, it's going to be a bit nippy, with temperatures dropping faster than a divorcee's popularity. Bundle up and keep those extremities warm. And finally, in Scotland, it's going to be a right old hoolie. Winds strong enough to blow a haggis off the table. Hold on to your kilts, folks. In summary, a soggy biscuit, a wet dog, a chilly politician and a flying haggis. That's all the weather. Good
1: day to you, 1988.
0: In a shocking incident, the Armenian community in Sumgait, Azerbaijan faced a brutal pogrom in February 1988. Over three days mobs of ethnic Azerbaijanis attacked Armenians, killing them on the streets and in their homes, while widespread looting ensued with scant intervention from the police. The world watches in horror as this ethnic conflict unfolds. And the Armenian community in Sumgait, Azerbaijan, faced a violent pogrom in February 1988, Our correspondent, Brian Bastable, has been investigating the situation and joins us now from Sumgait.
4: In the heart of Sumgait, Azerbaijan, this is a place of unimaginable terror, a place where a population of Armenians now fear for their lives. The situation here is desperate. In this city, a place of horror where life is cheap and the stench of death fills the air, I stand here amidst the carnage. As I survey the devastation, I see bodies scattered across the streets, buildings smoldering, and families broken, scattered, and traumatized. The Armenian community here is under attack, their homes, businesses, and lives in ruins. The mob, driven by a toxic mix of hate and fear, has unleashed a wave of violence that has left this city reeling. The police, powerless or perhaps complicit, have stood by as the city has descended into chaos. The sound of gunfire, screams and sirens fill the air as the mob continues its rampage. This is a place of unimaginable horror, where the Armenian community is under attack, their lives in ruins. As I stand here amidst the carnage, I am reminded of the fragility of life and the devastating consequences of hate and fear. This is Brian Bastable reporting from Sumgait, Azerbaijan for Newsbang.
1: 1972.
0: Now a scandalous tale of corruption and vice. The year is 1972 and the Sunday people have unveiled a sordid affair involving pornographer James Humphreys and a senior London police officer. It's a tale of illicit payments, exotic holidays, and a man whose empire of adult bookshops and strip clubs cast a shadow over London's moral landscape. The obscene publications branch, it seems, had a hidden cost. And now, for a deeper dive into the murky waters of police corruption, we turn to our trusted correspondent, Ken Shit.
5: Greetings, degenerates. As we travel back in time to the hazy, flower-powered year of 1972, Let's take a moment to remember the filthy, seedy underbelly of London's adult entertainment scene. A scene so corrupt, it would make Satan himself blush with shame. Pornographer James Humphreys, a man with a heart as black as the filthiest, grittiest porn he peddled, had his greasy fingers in every dirty pie in town. How did he manage to pull this off, you ask? Simple, He bribed the living shit out of the London police force, particularly those in the Obscene Publications branch. Humphreys owned a slew of adult bookshops and strip clubs, all of which he kept afloat by greasing the palms of corrupt cops. His diaries, which served as damning evidence against him, revealed a web of bribery so intricate it would make even the most seasoned mobster blush with envy. But the real kicker here is that one of these cops, a senior officer no less, was offered a bloody holiday as a bribe. A holiday, can you believe it? These guys were so deep in the muck, they couldn't see the light of day if it hit them in the face. This is Ken Shit, reminding you that corruption knows no bounds, and that even in the seedy world of pornography, there are those who will stop at nothing to line their pockets. So next time you watch a dirty movie or step into a sleazy strip club, just remember, there's a good chance that some dirty cop is getting a cut of the action. And that, my friends, is fucking disgusting.
0: 1933. In a momentous day that would forever reshape the course of history, the Reichstag building in Berlin fell victim to a devastating inferno in the year 1933. The conflagration served as the catalyst for the ascent of the Nazi regime, as Adolf Hitler exploited the chaos to suspend civil liberties and seize absolute control. The ominous shadow of Nazification loomed large over Germany as the nation teetered on the precipice of an era marked by tyranny and oppression. Now for a deeper dive into the implications of
6: this watershed moment, we turn to our correspondent, Hardiman Pesto. Martin, I'm standing outside the smouldering ruins of the Reichstag. The fire brigade has only just managed to get the blaze under control after several hours. Chancellor Hitler is already here, surveying the damage and promising to use every power at his disposal to find who was responsible.
0: Any idea yet on how the fire started, Pesto? Arson seems the likely explanation
6: at this point. Well, Martin, I spoke to Reichstag President Hermann Göring earlier and he told me definitively that it was arson. He said, This is clearly the work of communist subversives seeking to undermine the German nation. We will root them out and they will pay dearly for this affront. Strong words from Goring there. And Chancellor Hitler, what's his take on events? The Chancellor is spitting tax, Martin. He gave a speech just a short while ago blaming the communists and saying that if this is a signal that Jewry and Marxism has begun open warfare against the German people, then we will wipe them out. I think we can expect to see arrests very soon.
0: So Hitler is using this as a pretext to consolidate power and enact repressive measures against
6: his political opponents. There could be some very dark days ahead for Germany. Well, he says the fatherland is under threat, Martin. He told the crowd here that anyone who stands in our way will be cut down without mercy. We will fight fire with fire. Very stirring stuff, I must say. He certainly knows how to work up a crowd. Stirring stuff?
0: Pesto, this is the starting gun for a descent into fascism, don't you realise that? Have you lost leave
6: of your senses? I'm just reporting the facts as I see them, Martin. The Chancellor seems very determined to track down who did this. Back to you in the studio. Determined is
0: one way of putting it. Megalomaniacal psychopath would be another. Honestly, Pesto, you'd fawn over Jack the Ripper if he gave a rousing speech. That was Hardiman Pesto there, reporting from Berlin. 1776 in the annals of history, 1776 shall forever be emblazoned as the year of the American Revolutionary War. A titanic struggle for independence, pitting American patriots against their British overlords, culminated in the birth of a new nation. The Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge emerged as a decisive patriot victory, with 850 loyalists taken into custody. The patriots, also known as revolutionaries, championed the cause of freedom eventually garnering support from France and Spain. And now, to delve deeper into the Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge, we turn to our esteemed war historian, Bertrand Spitfire.
7: As we continue our cosmic voyage through the annals of Earth's history, we find ourselves in the year 1776, a time when the human species was embroiled in yet another conflict, the American Revolutionary War. This particular spat was between the American patriots, who had developed an uncanny aversion to tea taxes, and the British, who seemed rather attached to their monarchs' taste for exorbitant hats. A significant event during this tumultuous period was the Battle of Moore's Creek Bridge. Picture, if you will, a group of determined patriots armed with nothing more than their wits, courage, and an impressive collection of muskets, managing to capture over 850 loyalists. It was akin to a group of space squirrels outsmarting a fleet of intergalactic cats. The patriots, also known as the revolutionaries, were a feisty bunch who refused to bow down to British rule. They sought freedom liberty, and the right to choose their own ridiculous Whigs. Their cause eventually gained support from France and Spain, proving that even in the 18th century, there was no problem that couldn't be solved with a little international intervention. This war, like most human conflicts, was a complex affair filled with strategic maneuvers, betrayals, and the occasional bout of fisticuffs. But after years of struggle, the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783, recognizing the sovereignty of the United States. This was a monumental moment for the Earthlings, marking the birth of a new nation and the end of an era. So there you have it, a tale of rebellion, courage, and the indomitable human spirit. A reminder that even in the face of overwhelming odds, the human species will always find a way to persevere. And perhaps, just perhaps, it's this tenacity that will one day see them reach for the stars and join the rest of us in the great cosmic dance.
1: The news, bang. The only thing standing between you and the truth is your ignorance. Our reporter,
0: Ryder Boff is about to take us back to the year 1900 when FC Bayern Munich was founded. He'll describe the excitement surrounding the birth of what would become Germany's most successful football club. Stay tuned.
8: The year is 1900 and a fresh footballing chapter begins in Munich, Bavaria. FC Bayern Munich has just been founded. And the locals are already buzzing like bees around a Bratwurst stand The club's founders sat down at the stern-looking Munich-Gazelle gymnasium Their moustaches twitching with excitement as they signed the papers that would birth Germany's most successful football club And there it is The ink dries on the parchment as these Bavarian visionaries dream of future glory Franz John, he's got a look about him Could be an accountant or a mastermind behind this leather-ball-chasing enterprise They're talking formations, finance, and who'll have the best knees in 50 years all over a pint of what I assume to be non-alcoholic lager. Bayern's trophy cabinet now groans under 33 national titles and 20 cups. More silverware than you'd find in Buckingham Palace after a car boot sale. It's no wonder they've had to reinforce the floorboards at their headquarters. Let me tell you... Back when I was kicking oranges around in my backyard dreaming of Wembley, little did I know that across the channel, or two, some chaps were laying down roots for what would become a footballing empire. And speaking of empires, reminds me of my own short-lived venture into managing a Sunday League team. Boffs blunderers, we were called. More red cards than Valentine's Day at Elizabeth Taylor's house. In other news from 1900, well, not much else really happened today, but let me share this. A local pigeon fancier here claims his prize bird can deliver messages faster than Marconi's wireless telegraph system. He calls it feathered morse and plans to revolutionize communication if only he can stop them flying off to join those ferocious seagulls at Thornbridge cricket match. Now then, as we wrap up tonight's segment from Yesteryear, remember? History may be written by the victors, but it's narrated by yours truly with an extra slice of whimsy on top.
1: 1940.
0: And now, for Science Watch, our resident science correspondent, Calamity Prenderville, is here to shed light on the fascinating discovery of carbon-14 and its significance in radiocarbon dating. Get ready to have your mind blown. (laughs)
9: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Newsbang's Science Watch. Tonight, we're delving into the world of British innovation, specifically the discovery of carbon-14, a radioactive isotope of carbon. Yes, you heard that right. We're talking about carbon, the very same element that makes up 18% of your body weight and 49% of your clothing. Now, imagine this. It's 1940, and two American biochemists, Martin Kamen and Sam Rubin, are busy in their lab probably sipping on some lukewarm tea and munching on scones. Suddenly, in a moment of sheer brilliance, they stumble upon carbon-14. Little did they know that their discovery would lead to the development of radiocarbon dating, a method used to date archaeological and geological samples.
7: Here's how it works. Carbon-14 has six protons and eight neutrons in its atomic nucleus. It undergoes radioactive decay, emitting gamma radiation conversion electrons, or new particles. Radiocarbon dating relies on the properties of carbon-14 to determine the age of organic materials. It's like a time machine for historians and archaeologists.
9: But let's not forget the unsung heroes of this story. The British. Yes, you read that right. Our beloved nation played a crucial role in this discovery. You see, carbon-14 is a fickle element. It's unstable radioactive, and has a half-life of 5,730 years. But fear not, for the British came up with a solution, radiocarbon dating.
7: So, next time you're enjoying a cup of tea or admiring your tweed jacket, remember that you're part of a long line of British innovation. And who knows, maybe one day, you'll discover the next big thing in science.
9: That's all for tonight's Science Watch. Thank you for joining me, Calamity Prenderville on this wild ride through the world of science. Good night.
1: News Bang. The last word on the first word of the day. 1982.
0: As the curtains fell on the Doily Cart Opera Company, the world of theatre bid a solemn farewell to an era. The prolific Victorian partnership of Gilbert and Sullivan, creators of 14 comic operas, left an indelible mark on the musical genre. Their witty satire and memorable tunes graced the Savoy Theatre, popularising a style of comic opera that would become synonymous with their names. From the rollicking HMS Pinafore to the swashbuckling Pirates of Penzance and the exotic charm of the Mikado, their works remain a testament to the power of creativity and collaboration. And now, to delve deeper into the legacy of Gilbert and Sullivan, we turn to our reporter Smithsonian Moss.
4: Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us.
10: Wahoo! Culture vultures! It's your diva of the dramatic Smithsonian Moss, cutting through the airwaves like a hot knife through butter. Let's wind back the clock to 1982 when shoulder pads were big and hair was bigger but the biggest news of all was the swan song of the Doily Cart Opera Company. Oh, the humanity. Now, for those of you not in the know, the Doily Cart was like the OG boy band of opera, except with less hair gel and more top hats. They were the cats who put the oi in doily and the arda in, well, carte. And let's not forget the dynamic duo that fueled this operatic machine, Gilbert and Sullivan, the Batman and Robin of the Victorian stage. These guys were churning out hits faster than a rabbit on a date, with bangers like HMS Pinafore, the Pirates of Penzance, and the Mikado. They were like the Spice Girls of their day, except with more corsets and less girl power. But all good things must come to an end, and in 82, the d'Oily cart dropped the curtain for the last time. It was a day that saw monocles drop and mustaches quiver in despair the end of an era, my friends, the fat lady sang, and boy did she hit those high notes. So let's pour one out for the doily cart, those pioneers of patter songs and foolery. They may have left the stage, but they left behind a legacy that continues to inspire the musical theater we know and love today. And let's face it, without them, we wouldn't have the modern musical, and I'd be out of a job. And that's a wrap on this trip down memory lane. Keep it locked on Newsbang for all the throwbacks you can handle. And remember, in the world of culture, every night is opening night.
1: Newsbang, the world's only honest liar.
0: And just time to have a look at tomorrow's papers. The Guardian, Pope hangs up his mitre. The Telegraph, IRA mortar attack, nine dead in Newry. The Mirror, Tube Terror at Moorgate, 43 Parish. And that's it for tonight. On the Night Scotland Yard reported the theft of all their toilet seats. Police still say they have nothing to go on? Good night.
1: Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.